This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Thieves in the Kingdom, and the author is Ellen Burgoyne, and Ellen joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Ellen. Hello. Good to be with you. Well, it's good to have you with us. I want to read a few statements that you have at the beginning of your book uh, in the foreword and introduction. I'm not sure where I got this, but you say those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Sadly, most people in all societies do not learn from history and continue to suffer the consequences of that mistake. With that in mind, and, uh, you know, your name of your book, again, the title is Thieves in the Kingdom. What are you trying to advance here? What theme are you uh, promoting, and why did you write this? Okay, well, first, uh, the statement just takes us to the truth of all of our history, in that throughout history and and throughout uh, life, creation, the whole works of who we are, what we are, why we are, We don't tend to learn from mistakes. We don't tend to learn from the past. We are a creature of habit, and it does continue to come back at us and cause us many problems. And it is the reason we have the problems in our world, one of the many reasons. And so it was in that that I wrote the book to try and help people to focus on the most important things about life and about their lives, to understand the basic foundation of life and what they need to do about that, how they need to embrace the truths of it, learn them, and then embrace them and be willing to pay the price for them, if you will. I wrote it to educate people as well as to uh, do it in a way that was uh, somewhat fun and somewhat relaxing, somewhat uh, easy, and yet deal with some of the most profound truths of life. And so um, that's why I did it. I've been a minister for 30 years. And uh, as you minister, as you talk to people, as you work with people, you come to find that we have more and more information available to us, and yet people have less and less knowledge of the truth of life. And I find that even in the church, people know the scriptures very little. They don't know the Lord very much. They are busy about their activity in life, and they're not learning, and they end up getting hurt behind what they don't know. And so I wanted to build a foundation of the basic facts of life that people need to know and understand. Oh, there's a lot of a lot of questions here. My goodness. <laughs> you, That's you, all right. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, why do you think people remain ignorant, then, of this truth? Well, they have so many voices and so much information before them, uh, it can be confusing. Uh, they don't go to the necessary sources often. They don't know where they are, how to find them. Um, there are many, many circumstances and things in life, especially in our modern world. As I wrote it, we're so busy. Uh, there's information everywhere for people, but they tend to just pick and choose what is appealing or seems important and not pay the price, honestly, for what history has shown us throughout history, with especially the educated people of, of the times of the world that did go to look for the facts and did go to find history and so forth. Today's world doesn't do that. We just tend to grab what looks good, sounds good, feels good, and it's good enough. And they don't know the truth of life, and that's the part that really hurts them. 
Are you saying that Christians then really don't read their Bible? Most of them are not reading it. Most Christians today are not studying the Scriptures. They don't know the Scriptures. And because of that, they're not taking time, or they're going to church, and they're taking what the speaker tells them and assuming it's true. They don't check it out. Um, and they really, I find, as an evangelist for 30 years, I find we are moving further and further into the trap of where the church does not know the Word of God. And so if you don't know it, you don't know how to discern the truth from the error. And um, the Lord says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. They don't know, they don't understand the truth, and it ends up hurting you. And I, I see that, honestly, more and more in the church. Our young people, they don't know the Word, and they don't know how to discern things. And so in writing the book, that was one of the foundational things I wanted, the basic simple but profound truths of life to lay a foundation so that they can know the most important things and then be able to build upon them. You write, the truth about life is that people don't even know they have an enemy. Yes. Yes, one of the big problems, not only in life, if you, if you look around the world and you see all of the trauma and the problems and the wars and all the things we always are dealing with, of course, those who don't know the Lord don't understand what all that's about and why. But the church, who does know they have an enemy, who should know, uh, don't really know it, don't pay attention to it. And in fact, what I find as a minister, because I do speak into that area and teach into that area to help them, I find many don't want to know that because <laughs> like sheep, the Lord calls us, we're like sheep. Uh, they don't like those enemies. They just keep them away. Don't let's not talk about them. Let's not look at them. And if we just ignore them, somehow it won't hurt us. But the truth is, it does hurt us, and they don't go away. And we have an enemy that we need to understand and realize how to deal with. So, are you saying that God will not take care of us in our ignorance? We've got to do something. Well, He will take care of us in our ignorance to a fashion. But when things come into your pathway, when things are in your life, when circumstances, situations, or your enemy even is affecting your life, uh, you definitely need to do something about it. You can't just say, well, God will just protect me and everything, and, and, and I don't have to do anything, because it doesn't work that way. Uh, continually, you have Christians, even, who are serving the Lord and trying, have terrible things happen that should never have happened, and they don't understand what it was they were supposed to do, or how they could have helped or affected a change and so they get hurt behind it. Their children get hurt behind it. And I find so much of the time, even in the church, the church families have real problems, and they come for help, but they don't understand that the Lord has called them to stand up and learn and understand and, and fight the battle, not just in faith, if you will, but fight it honestly and, and know your enemy. Yes, if, we don't, if you don't know who your enemy is, you cannot combat him. You cannot stand uh, before him and, and stop him, because you have no understanding of anything. You say that people continue to walk in a state of denial. I, that really poses a problem. <laughs> yes, it does, but they do. If you, if you look at it in, in light of the world, which is why I wrote the book, in a sense, for both, if you think about people in the world, they do walk in a state of denial of self-deception even, to continue to reject the truths that are before them, what they're standing right in front of, and somehow try and make it easier or better or ignore it or call it something else, anything but to have to face it. 
it's hard to face hard things, but if you don't, they'll overwhelm you. And this is this is the truth in the church as well. They're doing the same thing so often. And though the Lord loves us, and they, He loves them, and He takes care of them and helps them, so often they run to the Lord and say, "Where were you? Why weren't you? Why didn't you take care of me? Why didn't you protect me?" And if they could hear Him, He He would be saying, "I'm trying, but you're not listening. I'm trying, but you're not doing some of the things you must do." And so there is a doing part on our side. It's not all the Lord does everything and we just kind of coast through. Throughout Scripture, he teaches us that you need to do some things. You need to work with me here. And the church often is caught up in a world where they don't do. They just ride. Well, I often hear someone say, you know, God is in control. So it's like, well, I don't have a part in it. But what you're saying is we have a part in it. We absolutely have a part in it. And that is one of the things in, in writing these in the kingdom that I wanted to lay out and make clear that, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, he is the God of everything. But because of the fall and because of Satan and because of everything that happened and is still happening throughout the world and will until he returns, that it's not all God is sovereign, therefore he's in control of everything. Because can I tell you that the Lord rarely gets his way. He rarely gets what he wants. Even though he's sovereign and in control in the whole, he's not in control of a a corrupt, out-of-control society that is lost in sin, bound in sin, stubborn to run in sin, and cause all the problems that it does, he's not the one doing all this damage. And unfortunately, too often, if we're not careful as Christians, we will lay all that at his doorstep as though it's his doing, and you can't do that. He's not doing it. But he is in ultimate control, yes. But there are things out of control here that he's not a part of and he won't ever be a part of. He will fix it in the end, but we can't blame him or we can't lay it at his doorstep saying, well, you know, that's God's doing somehow. And this is one of my things with the church, that somehow everything that happens in life is God's doing. That's not fair. It's not true. It is, you know, it is what it is, and he works with it. He works in the midst of it. He'll help us right through it. But it's not all his doing, and we don't dare do that to him. And Satan, Lucifer, is real. Yes, he's very real and very busy at the moment. Very busy, (laughs) yes. Very busy, and people have to understand that. And this is where I work with the church because they don't like to even think about him. Or if they they do, they put him in a particular area, and then they say, okay, well, we know about him, but he, he doesn't affect us, but he does. He's like, he only has one area where he's like the Lord, and that is that he never sleeps. He's free to come and go and work and work, and he's got all of his other fallen angels that work with him and do so much damage. And as long as you are not willing or even refusing to acknowledge your enemy and or learn who he is, and Jesus taught who he was. He came out of that wilderness, and he told us right away who he is, how to combat him, how to deal with him, how to work with it all, how to help people. And the church has, in a sense, really refused to take that up and look at it for what it is and, and, and protect themselves as well as other people. So that's a part of, of what I did in the book, was to make Satan who he is, to show them who he is and the rest of the fallen angels, and what effect they have in the lives of people, both the world and the church, so that they can at least be aware of the fact that he's very real. Well, I think it would be obvious that we live in a very evil society. There are very evil people that are all around us. Yes, there are. Very. I mean, they certainly are not following God. No, no, they're not following God at all. They're lost in their sin, 
And like Scripture says, Satan has blinded their eyes so they can't even see or understand. So, they, you know, there's no point in getting angry, if you will, at unsaved people who are lost in their sin and blinded, even though they're evil. But there is the point to where you don't allow them to just run loose and wreak havoc all over the world, which is what society tends to do. You don't, you know, for Christians, you don't want to judge anyone. You don't want to be hard on things. You don't want to point things out because that's not Christ-like, but Jesus did do that. You can't ignore the enemy. You can't ignore the unsafe people that are destroying the world, and yet society continues to do that, and it causes us tremendous problems like it's doing right now today, and will till the end. So you say there is righteous judgment. Yes, there is. There absolutely is. It come, you need to work out of a heart of love who understands that people are people. They're lost in their sin, or Christians are, you know, they have that nature that keeps bothering them. Uh, they have now have, once you're saved, you have the nature of God, but you still have the flesh to deal with. And so people make mistakes, they do wrong, and so forth. But that doesn't mean you just allow everything. You're not helping. I tell people all the time, you're not helping someone if you allow them to run loose in their destruction to destroy not only other people's lives, but their own life. If you care about, care about someone, you will stop them and help them. And, you know, I, I have spoken for years in prisons. I have no problem telling someone that if you need to go to prison, I'll help you go there. If that will stop you from your destruction of your own life as well as others. And I, of course, have testimonies by the hundreds of men who would say, it was because I went there, it was because I had to go through that that stopped me. And so... In society, that's how we need to really look at things. As a church, that's how we need to look at things. Don't just let things run loose and havoc because you're not helping anyone that way. Read another statement. You say, if we are willing to look to the past and learn from it and then take that to see ourselves in the times we are living, we will understand much of what is wrong and what we can do to fix it. That is the key, isn't it? What can we do? Yes, it is. To fix it. I mean, if, it, do, if it's as simple as trying to help your neighbor or friend or someone you've just met to, to learn about Jesus Christ, right? To testify. Absolutely. To, to take them to the truth of fact of the past, who God is, who Jesus is, who Satan is, about the fall, why we have this mess, and what we have to do about it. And you lead them to the Lord. You tell them God loves you. He cares about you. He will fix all that he needs to fix in your life now, and you'll have a great forever. But we have to go there, and you have to take them there. And, and why, you know, unsaved people will ask you, well, if God is so wonderful, why this and why that? And if you take them to the foundation of life, if you take them to those major truths of life, that you have a real enemy, his name is Satan. He really is. This is who he is, this is why and how and so forth. They understand, they can see that. If you, if you simplify it, the unsaved world can see and understand that, but you have to take them there. And the church too often doesn't want to take them there because it seems a little hard or maybe they won't like it. Well, I take them there because you know what? They are thankful when you tell them the truth and you show them what they need to know. Even if they don't receive it, they're still thankful that you tried. So if we would look to the past, what happened, why it happened, what that has caused, it would help us to know now what to do in our lives how to serve the Lord faithfully, to learn the Word, to understand what He's saying, and how to stand against the enemy, and be prepared for what's coming, because much is coming, and the world has to pay attention. Yeah, you say much is coming, and we dare not be ignorant of it. We cannot be so caught up in our daily lives that we do not prepare for the future. 
Yes. They must prepare. Uh, we are in now the end of the last days, beginning to the last days, and it's going to get much worse than it is now. It, right now, society is paying attention. Things are not good. This is bad. But now is when they need to really pay attention and learn and understand what they must do with that. People must get saved. People must know the Lord. They must give their hearts and lives to the Lord. They must prepare for eternity. If they do not, they're going to enter in the worst of days. And those days that are coming for them are very, very hard. The church doesn't even understand how hard hard is going to be. And if they did, they would not want to leave anyone here because it's not going to be nice. But whether you prepare the uh, the world and get them saved so that they're ready for eternity and can leave when it's time when the Lord takes them, or whether you prepare the world by sounding the alarm that tells them get ready because trouble's coming and you need to know the Lord. Either way, it's helpful. Ellen, do you have a website? Yes. Uh, www.burgoyneministries.com, just the spelling of our last name, uh, B-U-R-G-O-Y-N-E, ministries.com. And how do we get your book? You can get it, uh, Author House, of course, and uh, online. Any of the favorite booksellers, Amazon.com, Barnes & Nobles, whatever their favorite bookseller is, most all of them have it. Or on our website, you can order it right off our website, too. And um, just have their bookstore order it for them if they don't have it in. Well, thank you, Ellen. Thank you for being on Author Talk. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Ellen Burgoyne. She is the author of her book, Thieves in the Kingdom. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Sending a heartfelt message is one of the best ways to touch someone, to touch the heart. But it's easy to forget birthdays, anniversaries, and other special occasions. Imagine how many lives you would touch if it was easy to send those heartfelt messages. Send Out Cards provides a way for you to send a personalized greeting card to a friend, loved one, or business associate in less than 60 seconds from the convenience of your computer. You can even add a gift or gift card. Send Out Cards is about helping people reach out to those around them. It's amazing what a simple message can do. Send Out Cards helps you act on your promptings to reach out and change lives. Show host Michelle Bateman has learned through personal experience what it means to be an eagle by always working to be your best self. Please join our conversation on Send Out Cards Radio with Michelle Bateman to learn what it means to be an eagle on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, They Were Not Conversations with God, a critique of Neil Walsh's Conversations with God. And the author is... Neville Reed. And Neville joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Neville. Hey, how are you, Steve? Good to have you with us now. 
I'm going to read what you have written, how you would introduce your friend, uh, uh, introduce your book to a friend in a sentence or two. You say, have you ever wondered how to determine whether someone who claims they have spoken to God has actually spoken with the one real God as opposed to an imposter? My book will give you an example of how you might go about making such a determination. And so you deal with a friend, a friend named Mike, who you call a wavering Christian, and he's been influenced by this book called Conversations with God, written by uh, Neil Donald Walsh. Why then go this extra step and write this book? Yeah, I what I was concerned about when I talked with Mike was the fact that he may not be the only person who could be easily swayed by falsehoods. And when I spoke with Mike, I was um, very concerned about the extent to which he was impressed by this book and realized that uh, he needed to have somebody take a look at it and look at it from the perspective of of traditional Christianity and, and the truth that is revealed in, in Scripture. Uh, and the more I got into it, the more I got into digging into Walsh's book and, and seeing how he was just blatantly contradicting what God has already revealed to us through time, uh, the more I realized how deceived my, my friend was. So I became concerned for him and, and also concerned for others like him who might be uh, swayed uh, by uh, something that looks good but w- which is actually false. So it really was out of compassion for someone, uh, who a friend who I, compared, who, I, who I cared about, but who I, who I think um, would also be in the same shoes of others who uh, equally so are deserving of the truth and, and might be misled, and I didn't want them to be misled. Now you call this a New Age religion that Walsh conveyed in his book, you know, kind of a humanistic view of God? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, there are a number of authors who, or a number of people like Walsh, who believe that you can kind of carve out your own uh, way to God, and that God is not somehow limited by the word that he's revealed in the Bible and in Scripture. Uh, and the, the the term New Age is, is used generally to describe people who are seeking to sanction that particular sort of customized view of God. It's a sort of a self-centered view, which is that uh, God will uh, will take whatever you want and view that as being what he wants, as opposed to what the Bible teaches, which is that we should reevaluate what we want and decide whether it is what God wants. So it's a most, the, the, the New Age approach really starts with the self and then seeks to uh, edify the self almost in place of God, whereas Christianity has revealed to us through, through the scriptures and through time and through testimonies, begins with the self and recognizes our, our, our sinful state and how we must elevate that state to God by uh, allowing God to work through us so that we can rise to his will instead of pulling his will down to our will. And one of the deceptions is that there is no Satan. Yeah, that's what... The Bible, that, 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 that's what the um, book uh, Walsh uh, starts with uh, in his alleged conversation with God is where uh, he is allegedly told this by the speaker, which he calls God, is that Satan doesn't exist. And I, uh, that was one of the things that I recognized right away as being uh, 
a, a red flag, if you will, a real warning sign that this was a very dangerous, almost a demonic document, because uh, what better way of Satan fooling people than to say that he doesn't exist and have them believe that, and then he can sort of have his way with people uh, if they don't believe he exists. And when you look at uh, Scripture, uh, how Christ has told us in no uncertain terms that he saw Satan fall from heaven, and you look at the various uh, exorcisms that the Lord did in uh, the times of the gospel, where actual demons were uh, expurged, were purged from people, and if you look at documented uh, evidence throughout history of, of further exorcisms and encounters with the devil, there's just no question in my mind uh, that through the combination of biblical evidence and anecdotal evidence uh, that that Satan does exist, and he would like nothing more than for people to think that he doesn't exist, so that way they won't see him operating in their lives. And if he doesn't exist, I guess there's no need for a hell. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. That's part of the uh, the real horror of somebody falling into that whole way of thinking is that you may actually think there's no consequence to your actions in this life because if there's no Satan, there's no hell, and then everybody gets into heaven, and that is really uh, uh, outrageous. I mean, one of the things that caught me in this book, in Walsh's book, that uh, to me un uh, underscored the falsity of it, was that he had a comment in there where he says, Hitler went to heaven. And it was his way of, well, it wasn't Walsh saying, it was, it was Walsh recording what the speaker allegedly sent to him. And his point was that uh, there's no such real thing as sin. There's, there's only uh, people... Uh, Failing to achieve what they what they could have, what they could have achieved in uh, their lives, but no actual punishment or judgment for having made wrong, uh, evil, or moral, or I should say, uh, immoral choices. And um, the, to to take that to its extreme was just absolutely offensive. Um, but yet, according to the speaker talking to Walsh, there's no such thing as as, as offensive in, in the eye of God. There's only people failing to achieve what they had set out to achieve. But that that whole way of thinking is um, is, is very, uh, not only false, but it, it's, it's awfully scary and, and incredibly deceptive. As you put it, a state of unfulfillment. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, one of the things that, that caught me as being a radical uh, departure and contradiction from what God has been trying to teach us from the very beginning, from the time of creation to now. We've, uh, we, we've just been rebellious like children against His will. Uh, and I think uh, for a speaker to claim to be God and act as though uh, there is no uh, failure to achieve uh, God's standard and that it's only a matter of our failing to achieve our own standards completely ignores who God really is. How long has this book been around, this book called Conversations with God? Well, I know that he had the, uh, the, the conversations in the early 90s, so I'd say around the early to mid-90s is when the book has been around, and I think it was sort of percolating uh, sort of the late 90s, and then my friend, uh, I had my conversations with my friend around mm, late 90s or early 2000, uh, and then I think I ended up, the, the conversations with my friend Mike were, over a um, extended period of time, and I finally uh, got the outline done sometime around 2002, and then got the first uh, manuscript done around uh, 2003, and then went to publication more, more recently. Now, you say this is not a novel, but a Christian apologetics book. Explain what you mean by that, a Christian apologetics book. 
Sure. In the history of Christianity, there have been uh, people, uh, sometimes very well-known people like St. Augustine or uh, Thomas Aquinas, who have defended Christianity against uh, critics, people who have attempted to take away from Christianity's core elements, uh, attack Christianity as uh, being false. Um, you could even go back to the time of Christ and look at how people attacked his authority, uh, claimed that he was not speaking on behalf of the kingdom. And very often we see Jesus engaged in, in rigorous debate against people who claim to know more than him about God, about how they were wrong. Uh, and we see Christ defending the real meaning of Scripture and the, the real authenticity of, of a relationship with God and, of course, his own identity as a son of God and, as, and, and God as the ultimate sovereign authority. Uh, and then after, we, after Christ uh, died and resurrected and left the responsibility to his followers to build a church, we see Saul, uh, who became Paul. Saul initially was a Pharisee and had uh, persecuted Christians, but then met Christ and decided to give his life to Christ. And in, after doing so, began to uh, confront people with like the Greeks and, and Gentiles and some Jews at the time who questioned Jesus' authenticity, his authority, and his identity. And he also confronted people in churches who were seeking to deviate from what Christ had taught. And in all those conversations he has that he uh, recorded in, in what we call the epistles of the New Testament, we see him very, very often engaging in debate and argument to correct what people had uh, were, were, were pursuing as, as falsehood, as a deviation from what the Lord had wanted us to do. And then you have a long line of people from Paul all the way to, like I said, in the Middle Ages, uh, in the early church fathers, uh, people defending uh, Christian doctrine and truth against those who would seek to distort it or dilute it or compromise it. And the term apologetics uh, comes from apologia, apolog, uh, I think mispronouncing apologia, which is uh, this notion of uh, defending a uh, truth uh, against an, an attack. It's not that you're apologizing for Christianity in the sense that uh, we have in the modern uh, context of thinking that we have to be sorry for anything, because after all, the Bible says we should never be ashamed of the gospel. But it's more in the original intent of defending uh, Christian truth against falsehood, which which actually ends up being a reaffirmation of Christianity and not a uh, and not a feeling sorry about it. So we're dealing with false ideas. We've talked about the devil is a myth, uh, sin is not reality. You also deal with. The Bible is not reliable. Yes, that was one of the things that really shocked me about uh, the, the Walsh's book, where the speaker tells him that uh, you really can't rely on, on rabbis and priests and, and on the Bible. And uh, that was one of the things that really got to me very uh, quickly as, as, a, as another huge red flag. That here, here we had someone who claimed to be God who was... Uh, claiming as unreliable the very word of God that had been given to us by the ancient Israelites and then by the followers of Christ all the way uh, through the last book of, of the Bible, which was written by the Apostle John, the book of Revelation. Uh, thousands of years of, of Revelation all of a sudden claimed to be unreliable. And what I tried to point out in the book for people who may feel vulnerable to those sorts of arguments and attacks, because they're very common in modern-day culture, of people claiming that the Bible is not reliable, is that there are so many historical tests that we use to apply to to determine whether historical documents are true and accurate and reliable that are amply satisfied, more than satisfied, 
enormously well satisfied by uh, uh, by the Bible. That is, the Bible performs beautifully when it is subjected to those tests. And those tests include such things as eyewitness testimony. Well, we have in the Bible many instances where the events were recorded by people who had access to the eyewitnesses, like, for example, Luke, uh, one of the Gospel writers, explicitly refers to the fact that he is documenting what he has learned by interviewing eyewitnesses. And we also have the fact that Luke would have been writing around the time that a lot of these eyewitnesses to to Christ would have still been alive because the uh, sequence of uh, the, 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 the Bible uh, accounts that we have, at least as a, of the New Testament, are, were most likely written before 70 A.D. And one of the reasons why we think that's the case is because uh, the, the, the Temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. And as one scholar uh, points out, uh, uh, if um, or, or, or given that none of, the, none of the gospel accounts talk about the actual destruction of the um, temple in 70 A.D., it talks about the prophecy of it. The fact that the, 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 the uh, gospel writers did not mention it is very strong evidence that it didn't happen yet because that event would have been so cataclysmic in the, in the Jewish community, the destruction of the temple and the um, uh, dispersion of, of the Jewish people uh, with no actual uh, temple to gather around, that it's inconceivable that that would not have been recorded. So therefore, the scholar concludes that uh, for in addition many other reasons, that the gospel accounts were written before 70 A.D., which is very close in time. I mean, it's only within 40 years after uh, Jesus would have uh, resurrected. It, it would be kind of like scholars in the future writing about the history of America and uh, not mentioning 9-11. Uh, you would think that the 9-11 account being so cataclysmic in our history uh, would certainly be mentioned in an account of America uh, to the extent the account was written uh, after 9-11. And finally, you don't have to worry about getting to God because he's so big. We don't need Jesus Christ. God is a big target. We can get to him. No problem, right? Yeah, that was something which also was in the book. And when you when you carry that to its conclusion, it has so many uh, unbelievable uh, uh, and, and, and ridiculous implications that it just uh, it just cannot be true. I mean, if it were the case that each person could customize their way to God and we could ignore uh, how the way that God has revealed himself to us through Christ, uh, then uh, you would really make so much of the Bible meaningless and, and not true. Uh, and that just cannot be the case. Uh, the, well, one of the things that strikes me about uh, the, the Bible and about how, what Christ has done is that there are many people who have walked the earth and have claimed to, uh, to know God or have claimed to, to give uh, holy uh, pronouncements. But, not, but none of those people, except for Christ, uh, died for me and for my sins, and none of them resurrected uh, as Christ did uh, for me and for you and for everyone listening so that we could enjoy the experience of eternal life with God and experience victory over death. Uh, and that, that is what is fundamentally so unique about Jesus, is that uh, he was without sin, yet he took upon the sins of the world. He died, and the evidence is overwhelming that he did resurrect. Uh, and he li- and he's alive. He, he lives today. 
he's not dead. And that fact uh, alone, uh, as well as his ministry and his unique connection to God, is something which I'm urging people to take very seriously and to not be dissuaded or not be distracted uh, by the kinds of books that are out there like Walsh's, which seek to drive a wedge between God and his effort to get to us and to be with us through his son, Jesus Christ. Neville, do you have a website? Um, yes, and I um, I don't actually. <laughs> it just was recently constructed, and I have to uh, uh, I have to check in on the on the actual address. But um, that is part of what is being con- done in, in conjunction with the publicity of the book. Is that there will be a website up, and through the website, you'll get a chance to read some more, and, and also get a chance to order the book if you're interested. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So I imagine we could Google Neville Reed and find it probably. Yeah, I think that when it's up and, up and operational, I suppose that, that that's true, yes. And we can also get it from other online retail stores, bookstores, of course, yes. through Author House and through others. Yeah, Author House is also on Amazon. That is true as well. That That's very true. Well, Neville, we appreciate you telling, telling us about your book on Author Talk. Thank you so much. Thank you, too, Steve. I really appreciate it, and ha- happy reading to everybody. That was Neville Reed. He is the author of his book, They Were Not Conversations with God. A critique of Neil Walsh's Conversations with God. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Prime. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, A Confirmation of Family, Paul's Testament, and the author is Bobby C. Jones, and Bobby joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Bobby. Hey, how you doing? Well, this book, A Confirmation of Family, Paul's Testament, you say it is written from a seven-year-old African-American boy's point of view. 
not an adult telling a story that happened when he was seven. You're actually telling it from the boy's point of view, and that you're also, what sets the story apart is that the characters speak in the language of the time, but but the boy's thoughts and narrations are written in proper English. So I'm sure that was a challenge to take, you know, keep that all straight. But why write this book? Why did you want to write a book about a seven-year-old African-American boy's point of view? Well, I, I, well, I really choose a child because, you know, because if you ask a well, seven-year-old child something, he actually tell he have thought behind it. And he'll tell you every the reason why. But if he's like fourteen, he don't give you a dictionary answer. So I just they're more questionable. They question everything. Well, that's for or, sure. With that age group, we're always saying, "Why is this and why is that?" Right. Right. So here's this young boy, Paul, and he is looking at life around him, looking at family, and, and you say that, you know, this is an entertaining story. It It's not so much of a, some theme or some moral that you're trying to get across. It's, you just wrote it for entertainment? Right. I think that's it's like, I mean, you really don't go to a movie. It's me learning something. You go to be entertained. So I just decided, if I write, I'm going to write just for entertainment. Well, tell us about Paul. Tell us about who he is, where he is, you know, and what he's doing at this time in his life. Well, the year was 1964. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess you can think of that. He lived in Georgia, and things didn't work out, and they had to move to North Florida with their grandparents, well, with his grandmother. And he sort of learned that living on a farm was a little different. Than living, you know, in, in city. So he's really going through a lot of changes. He sounds like he probably has to work a lot. Oh, a lot. In fact, oh, a whole lot. He has to work a whole lot. And well, I can. Well, it's all changing, and then it's a house full of women because there's no men. <laughs> so they all, you know, they passed away by the time he showed up. His grandfather and. I don't want to give the book away, but it's only like one male figure that he looks up to. So uh, you can tell us about who is that? Who does he look up to? Uh, this is uh, grandmother's nephew, her sister's child. And how old is he? Uh, like 45. Okay. So he's kind of like a father figure to him then. Right. So that's very important for this young boy who uh, sounds like doesn't have a father, a grandfather right there that boys always look to. Right. Well, uh, the, the biggest person is his grandmother because back in the 60s, grandmother were really the you know, African-American community. They, they ran the thing. They ran everything, the family. Even, the, even if they had a husband, they still ran the family. <laughs> So, I mean, extended family, too. I mean, their children, their children, because they, they had all the babysitting. Because back then, they didn't have daycares, and so kids had to go stay with the grandparents. All right, family taking care of family. Right. So what does he think about? What, what are the questions he's asking at this young time in his life? What is, does he see around him? Well, it's like little things. I can give you a little, little quote from it. It's, 
small like when it was in Georgia, it was all all black community, and it was like a little poor. And his moved here, his grandmother, you know, they had a few hundred acres of land and a large house, and and he asked his mom, <laughs> why did she have a big white folk house? No, he asked was she white because he had a large house. He had never seen a black person in a large house. So he asked that question, and she explained it to him that, you know, black people have stuff the same. He didn't know. You know, he's a child. He's asking questions. So he kind of looked at life and thought, well, I am of a different color, and that's why we don't have any money? Right. That's what he was thinking because that's all he ever saw. I mean, he never... He, he don't question it. He just want to know. You know, he just see things different. That's what I was trying. It's a. That's well. Sometimes the book hard to read, but it's, it's really not. Why is it hard to read sometimes? Well, when you first start, you have to get used to the language. But after a couple of pages, the story takes over, and somehow your brain adapts to it. So you start to get accustomed to the language. I mean, there's kind of, I'm sure there's a kind of a rhythm to it. Uh, yes. It's a little rhythm, but it's more of, I think it's more of the, the brain adapts. Ah, okay. To anything. I mean, I mean, if you're doing, reading about anything after about a couple of pages, I learned this from taking these courses. Mm-hmm. After a couple of pages, you, your brain adapts to what's going on in it. You can follow it through, but if you never go past the two pages, you'll never understand it. So does Paul like the farm? Uh, when he first gets there, he doesn't, but he gets in a lot of trouble, too. You know, he's seven years old. But he, he starts to enjoy. What does he like about the farm? Uh, well, I think the farm itself, he really, it's not the farm more, more than his family. And that's what your book is focused on, this, as you call it, a conformation of family. So he is, uh, at this time in his life, he's got a lot of questions about family, like any seven-year-old, especially his dad's not around, his grandfather's not around. But there's something very, and he must feel the importance of the family. Is that what you're trying to say to us? Right. The importance of it. Because he, well... Um, I think I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but when I was in Georgia, he had a, well, I guess it was a normal family, his father and his stepfather, and, and, well, he had to leave because his stepfather tried to kill him, I mean, I can say that, I mean, it's just the start of the story, tried to kill him, and he had already killed his, his, his father, and the police killed his stepfather. So they had no family left there, so they had to move on. That's what I meant about the family. Right. Well, he's he's uh, been through some very traumatic experiences then at a very young age. Right, and it doesn't stop. <laughs> but it, and you could say it's about the language too, because he has a older sister, and she asked him why he spoke the way he spoke, and it's it's really about the language they were speaking. And he would say, he was trying to teach me to talk like white folks. Ah. And, she's, and she'd say, no, I'm just trying to teach you proper English. Yeah. You know, little stuff. But he but he feels 
more comfortable, more being himself by speaking what he is, the dialect that he's used to speaking. Is that what, what this is about? Uh, no, in a way, it's like him, when he's around his own, he does, but when he has to, you know, speak in public or anywhere, he uses proper English. So he's learning. He's learning this whole... He's learning, right? He's just learning. He's learning. He's learning that if you you don't speak proper English, you probably won't get a good job. There you go. Right. So... Well, and and it's... And most of it... And the second half of the book is more of him trying to learn how hard it was him trying to learn. He had to give this... He got to give a large speech for thousands of audiences. It's... So the book uh, is about Paul from seven years old to does it does it go on into later well, years? It's, well, it's really only nine months of his life. Okay, and I got to write ten more. <laughs> oh, so this is going to be a series. All right, because it's like here in this town I live in, High Springs, a small. It's, in fact, in a way, it's about this area. I mean, the historical things in the book are correct. The characters are just fictional. It could mm-hmm. be any family. Okay. So, I mean, I mean the hurricanes and whatever, you know, the, the dates and the weather and everything, that's all correct for those days in 1964. I so mean, so this know, first book is, is just uh, nine months, and then uh, as the, each... You have nine more novels that you're going to write, at Paul growing up in this small... Southern farming community, right, and they all about a year. <laughs> okay, a year, Just each. a year each. So we got nine more to go. He's going to be about sixteen then when you're done. Right. Well, maybe he'll continue on. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to. I've been pretty good reviews so far. So. Well, fantastic. Good for you. Good for you, Bobby. It's uh, it's a little different. It's kind of hard to explain because. It actually takes you through every emotion you have, all of them, every one. I mean, every one of them. That's what I tried to do. So, so every one meaning from feeling good to being very scared? Scared, crying, love, hate, mm-hmm. everything. Okay. Every one of them. That took a while, right, <laughs> to make sure that happened. I find myself reading and I'm thinking, did I read this? I mean, did I write this? Uh-huh. You know? But it's more of a, I write a little different because I start writing and the, and the story itself takes it where it's going. I don't decide the story. The story decides the story. Most authors talk about that when they're writing fiction. The, the characters just kind of start talking, they say. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, I, I started one way and then, Something gonna happen, and so you have to carry it that direction. <laughs> I mean, that's what I mean. I don't know what I, I've written until I've already wrote it. Now, does Paul have any special friends that uh, help him? Oh, that's the big part. He's the only boy, and he lives on a farm, and he had to give up There's certain things. You have to give up living like that. <laughs> so he does live quite a ways from anyone else his age. Right. Well, he has a that Henry Lee, the forty-five-year-old, I guess, the only male around. But he has a family too. 
he got a boy a year younger than him, than Paul. And, you know, that's about it, because they live on the farm. And he really don't have time. You know, he got to chop the wood. He got to do everything a man does at seven <laughs> around a farm. So he don't really have time to do anything else. From sunup to sundown kind of a job, huh? Kind of a life. Right. He's had to grow up pretty different. <laughs> so at seven years old, he's on the farm. Is there any playtime for Paul? Uh, not really. <laughs> I'm only saying that because uh, I was sort of raised on the farm, and you really don't have much playtime. So what I does mean, what does Paul then do for himself at that age? Uh, you know, that's usually we see kids that age. I mean, they're. They're into doing things for themselves. They're for entertaining themselves. How does he deal with all this at such a young age? Well, uh, that's the point of it all. He deals. He deals with it without. He's so busy. He don't think about it. I mean, he has. You know, he. He just. There's no playing time for him. That's the point of the story. Mm-hmm. This kid doesn't have time to play like other kids. So what does he think about? Has he got some uh, dreams, or at that young age, what is he thinking about? Uh, if I, I don't know, I'd probably give the book away. Oh, you don't have to give us everything, that's for sure, but, you know, give us one thing that he thinks about. Oh, well, what I was saying about the speech, you know, the dialect and everything, that's what, what happens is, that's what he does best speak best in front of an audience, you know, mm-hmm. just a, he's, he's good at it. He's a smart kid in school, and he's thoughtful, and but he's curious. So does he yeah. get a chance to speak at school or at church or? Uh, no, it's a little larger than that. <laughs> okay. He, well, I can say that. It doesn't matter. He's, it's at the uh, Civic Center with like 20,000 people. Because hmm. he, he won a contest. Ah, okay. So, I mean, and the thing was, all the other kids were teenagers, and he was seven, and he won. All right. I mean, that's what I was saying. That's, I didn't want to give too much away. Well, we'll have to find out all the details, but that sounds pretty interesting of how in the world did he get chosen to speak in front of such a large group. Well, because I did when I was that age. It's a little bit about me. Not the same way, but mm-hmm. it was the same. Oh, you know, when you write, you do write a little about yourself in every book. I mean, sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, you say this book appeals to mostly female baby boomers, especially from the South, uh, reminds them of their youth. Right. It reminds them of a time when they, when grandparents were grandparents. You listened to them. They were the smartest people. I mean, they wasn't, they wasn't always right. But they did have an answer for something, and <laughs> there was there, and there was respect for the grandparents. Right. Well, Bobby, tell us how to get your book. Uh, well, you can order it from Barnes and Noble or Amazon dot com, or you can order it from my website, <laughs> beoliverchild dot com, and beoliverchildbooks dot com. Well, Bobby, we appreciate you telling us about your your new fiction, and it really is a lot about black history, right? Uh, 
Well, I thought it was, but <laughs> after, I, after I wrote it, uh, even the, the white people in South said, I remember that. Oh, really? Okay. It's the same. You know? Okay. It just happened to be, the kid just happened to be black. It's telling the story of them, too. All right. Just of the Southern thing. Well, thanks again. Oh, thank you. That was Bobby C. Jones. He is the author of his book, A Confirmation of Family, Paul's Testament.